0: Welcome to the Voyages and Travels of the Ambassadors, the epic story of a 17th-century trade expedition from Germany to Persia that failed so completely, its leader was publicly executed upon his return. This is Episode 16, Apricocks, Cowcumbers, and Home Invasions. As the trade mission from Duke Frederick of Holstein prepares to leave Ardabil, our author investigates the local religious institution built by the city's founder and expanded by his son. That institution is the tomb complex of Sheikh Sefi, and it plays an important religious and economic role in the city, and indeed in the country as a whole. Olerius says its wealth amounts to many millions in gold, that it could supply more ready cash than the Shah of Persia himself, And that it is capable of raising and maintaining a powerful army all on its own. It supports the operations of many farms and dairies in rural areas surrounding the city, and in the city itself it funds 200 homes, 9 public baths, and 8 caravanserais. In the bazaar, taxes from 100 shops go into its coffers, and merchants who have neither shops nor stalls also pay certain duties. It collects taxes from more than 30 small towns and villages in the vicinity of Artabil, five in the province of Serab, 60 houses and 100 shops in the city of Taurus, several caravanserais and baths in the city of Kassan, and also from certain cities in the provinces of Kilan, Astara, and Mokan. And all of that does not include gifts brought by pilgrims who come in hope of curing an illness, or those who come on other religious business. Indeed, it receives so many gifts, donations, and legacies that not a day goes by without the arrival of many oxen, horses, asses, camels, sheep, money, and other things. All these gifts are received by two persons who have taken an oath to be faithful to the sacred place. The oxen and sheep are sent to the butcher, and the meat distributed to the poor. The rest of the animals are sold, and all cash receipts are deposited into a chest covered with crimson velvet. Everyone who gives to the tomb receives in return a handful of what Olerius calls aniseed, which might be star anise, fennel, licorice, or tarragon, which are used to flavor food, candy, and alcoholic drinks. They also receive the assurance that their souls shall enjoy serenity and bliss in the next world. The tomb of Sheikh Sefi has the additional critical function, along with similar institutions in other cities, of providing certificates that can be used to prove a pilgrim's Islamic faith, protect the bearer against disgrace and misfortune, and even save them from execution. You will remember from episode 11 that the interpreter hired by the Germans, one George Rustan, had participated in a scheme with Ambassador Brueggemann to prevent Olarius from taking Arabic language lessons. At least some people in the German embassy have a bone to pick with Rustan, and we're told that they plan to lodge a complaint with the Shah. In episode 13, Rustan had written to some of his friends in Isfahan that, although he has lived a long time among the Christians, he has not forsaken the Islamic faith. And so, in Ardabil, Rustan prays at the tomb of Sheikh Sefi and receives several copies of a certificate proving his faith. As an aside, Olerius tells us that two were found among his things after his departure and were taken back to the library of Duke Frederick in Holstein. To explain how these certificates work, Olerius tells us the story of one Zira Khan, a person of quality so favored by the Shah himself that he had been allowed to marry a woman of the Shah's court. One day, Zira was late to dinner. The Shah smiled, saying the caresses of his new wife must be to blame. Zira replied that he had, indeed, been dallying with a woman, but that it had been the wife of another man at the Shah's court, one Agassiz Beg, who was seated at the same dinner table. The Shah was so startled at Zira's insolence that, blushing out of vexation and shame, he could not look at either man. Zira, correctly inferring that he had said too much, left the room and went home. The Shah said that Agassiz should go and bring back Zira's head, since the man had not only dishonored his house, but also made his lewdness public at the shah's own dinner table. Some hours later, wondering what was taking Agassiz so long, the shah sent a messenger who found both men making merry and drinking together like good friends. Insulted by their behavior, the shah instructed his men to go and fetch both their heads. In the meantime, Agassiz had come to his senses— Realizing that the Shah never joked about such things, and that he might come to regret his failure to bring back Zira's head, Agassi left town. But Zira, confident of the Shah's favor, stayed, and had his head cut off. This is where those certificates come into play. Some months later, Agassiz went to one of the tombs where they are handed out, presented himself and the certificate before the Shah, and was accepted back into the Shah's court. I commend thee for thy wit, my honest, kind-hearted cuckold, the shah told him. I pardon thee. Come, kiss my foot. Olarius ends the story by telling us the men who provide these certificates are guilty of frauds and connivances in the disposal of them, by delivering them signed and sealed with blanks to put in the names of such as may have occasion for them, as may be seen by the copy which is in His Highness's library at Gautorp. After two full months in Ardabil, our ambassadors hear from the Shah, and on the 1st of June, they are ordered to depart for Isfahan immediately. Their appointed guide has six weeks to complete the journey, but he is old and not fit for hard traveling, so hands the task to his son, named Abasculi, who does his best to get ready for the journey. In an effort to get them out the door, he even brings all the horses and camels to where the ambassadors are staying. It doesn't work. Ambassador Brueggemann has demanded for the entire trip that his brass cannons be schlepped all the way from Germany, and is once again resolved, in defiance of all persuasion to the contrary, not to leave them behind. He also demands carriages to be made for them, but since Artibel is not well stocked with wood, he orders some ornamental trees to be cut down, which, as you can imagine, does not endear him to the locals. The construction takes eight days. Before leaving, the ambassadors send gifts to the governor three of the best sable furs they have, a chiming clock, two paintings done by the mission's own painter, and a chest containing twelve bottles of Ros Solis, a type of Italian liqueur made from alcohol, sugar, and water in the same proportion, and flavored with various types of essence. Our own popular infused vodkas come to mind. The governor delivers two excellent horses with quality saddles and bridles, two pieces of satin one red, the other blue, one piece of gold and silver brocade, one piece of cotton stuffs with silk flowers, and a piece of cushioned canvas with flowers of gold and silver. The term cotton stuffs is rare these days. An English dictionary from 1784 says it was defined as all stuffs made of cotton and linen mixed and stuffs wholly made of cotton wool woven in Great Britain, and was apparently a term created specifically for the purpose of imposing additional import taxes. It probably included cotton hosiery, lace, and other similar fabrics. The term was also noted in a 1716 edition of the Gloucester Coastal Port Books. Port Books were kept by local customs officials to record customs duties paid on goods imported and exported through English and Welsh ports between 1565 and 1799. Finally, on June 10, their guide brings 160 horses and 12 camels for the baggage and the six artillery pieces. The train leaves the next day, and the ambassadors follow on horseback on June 12. Ambassador Brueggemann, who has still not fully recovered from fever, is carried on a horse litter and leaves at 5 a.m. with 30 men. Ambassador Crucius leaves a few hours later with the rest of the retinue. As he did when they arrived, Governor Kalbela Khan meets them in a field outside the city and sees them off. They cross a high and craggy mountain and overtake the baggage train less than 20 miles later in the valley town of Busum. There, they discover that the wheels of the artillery carriages are so spent that they must leave the larger cannons behind, taking with them only two smaller brass guns, each weighing 300 pounds, and four murdering pieces. Brueggemann measures the bore and size of the guns left behind and extracts a promise that the Shah will have them delivered to Isfahan. They continue across the mountains on June 13, and Olerius describes the road as a very bad way over mountains with such dreadful precipices that, for safety's sake, Ambassador Brueggemann is carried by men instead of horses. In the valleys they find many great villages and huts and excellent meadows, all covered with fair cattle, and they arrive at the village of Sengoa after making 25 miles. The next day they come to a very pleasant valley and make camp near a delightful spring, where they find fat green grasshoppers measuring more than three inches in length and one and a half inches around. Brueggemann feels well enough to ride on June 15, and they set out after dinner, under the eye of a dreadful mountain Alarius calls Taurus, and which, he says, the Persians call Perdelis. I can't find it on the map, but it appears that the travelers are roughly following today's Highway 31 toward the Gezel ozan river crossing. He says the route into the valley looks like an abyss. It takes them two hours to reach the bottom, and more than three hours to climb out the other side— even though between the points of the mountains there seemed to be not a half a league of distance, he says. It is a most dangerous passage for travelers, who are obliged to come in strong parties for fear of falling into the hands of robbers, who discover at a distance the number of passengers and accordingly judge whether they can engage them or must let them alone. At the bottom of the chasm they cross the river, which falls into it through rocks and precipices with an inconceivable swiftness and a noise that stuns the passengers. The way is so dangerous they dismount and walk their horses. The ascent up the other side is very steepy to the top of the mountain, with precipices and abysses so dreadful to look on that the mule of a Muscovian ambassador, falling down there, was never seen or heard again. They reach the top of the mountain pass in the dark, and their guide has stayed behind in a village near the river crossing. We were gotten into very dangerous ways, Olerius writes. But they continue on foot for another three hours, sweating, cold, and weary, arriving in the next village at midnight. They spent the next day resting, listening to music, eating and drinking, and firing their cannons. Everyone is pretty upset at the guide, who let them make the most dangerous part of the journey at night, and they intend to give him a sharp reproach as soon as he catches up. He is deeply apologetic when he arrives, acknowledging that he should not have neglected them, but he also says he does not deserve the injurious and blasphemous expressions which erupt from Ambassador Brueggemann's mouth. Everyone but Brueggemann appears to accept his apology, and O'Larius says he contributed much to the good cheer we made that day. Two days later, at midnight on June 18, the Germans reach the village of Kamal and find their assigned lodgings are several houses scattered up and down three different hills. The ambassadors and the gentlemen have a great unfurnished house at the entrance of the village, which has no conveniences at all. Olarius says they are half dead with cold and spent with hard traveling, but they refuse to stay there and instead seek out nearby occupied homes. The so-called country people who live there are surprised at the unexpected arrival of the Germans and refuse to let them in. Instead of retreating to their assigned quarters, the ambassadors force their way in, evicting families of men, women, and children into the night. As you might expect, this does not end well. We were hardly laid down, hoping to rest ourselves the remainder of that night, Olarius writes, when our trumpet sounding to horse made us get out of our beds to see what the matter should be. The matter is that twenty Persian men from the village have attacked the guards which the ambassadors have left on the street, and would have killed them if two German men had not come to their relief. The Persians withdraw, fearing that others might also intervene, and twenty musketeers are sent to secure the town. The Germans stay for two days, and Olarius falls sick with a burning fever. They leave at 2 a.m. on June 20 and march through a vast and extremely hot plain until noon when they arrive at the little city of Senkan. The governor of Sultani, a city some 20 miles to the east, happens to be in town and in the Persian manner meets them on the road accompanied by 30 well-mounted men. Among them is one man who has wooden hands and no feet, although he appears to ride as well as anyone else. Hilarius tells us his story. The son of an important family in the city, the young man had been guilty of strange debauches and extravagances, including the frequent rape of women and girls in their own homes. His behavior had become so bad that the Shah could have ordered his execution, but his father's good reputation at court saved his life, and the penalty was merely that his hands and feet were cut off, and the stumps thrust into boiling butter to stop the bleeding. The city of Sunkan was once quite large and famous for its trade, But that was before Tamerlane destroyed it. We heard about Tamerlane, or Timur the Lame, in episodes 6 and 10. Born in 1336 in what is now Uzbekistan, he was a Turk who served the Mongols and became one of the most successful military commanders in history. Sankan has been reduced several times by the Turks, and yet even now there are some very handsome houses in it. The Germans are housed with much civility in several well-furnished homes, their sick people are extremely well accommodated. The governor comes for a visit and shows off a shoulder wound he received at the siege of Erevan the previous year. The wound has recently reopened, and so the Germans send him to their physician and surgeon, a kindness he repays by doubling the ordinary allowance of their provisions, and with dishes of apricots and cowcumbers, which were a great refreshment in that excessive heat and sultriness of weather. Senkan appears to be the modern city of Zanjan, which is situated 170 miles west of Tehran, on the desert floor, at the foot of the Alborz mountain range. All about the city, Olerius tells us, there are only barren and sandy grounds, which bring forth only briars of about the height of a man's hand. They have most likely been traveling on what is now the ardabil kalkal zanjan Road, or Highway 32. Today, Freeway 2 connects Tehran with the city of Tabriz, 380 miles to the northwest. To avoid the heat, they leave after sunset on June 21 and travel 30 miles by moonlight. The night is calm and cold, and when they dismount after dawn, they find that their arms and legs don't work very well. 15 members of the embassy get sick from the sudden changes in temperature, extreme cold at night to the excessive heat of the day, and all suffer fits and a violent burning fever. Sultani is the modern city of Sultania, an Arabic word which translates loosely to the Regal. It was built as the capital of a Mongol Ilkhanate ruler in the 14th century. Intended to be the largest and most magnificent city in the world, that dream died with its founder, and modern Scottish historian William Dalrymple has described it as a deserted, crumbling spread of ruins. It is not entirely in ruins in 1637. Larius tells us it makes a great show at a distance by reason of some very sumptuous structures and a great number of steeples and great pillars which dazzle the eye on the outside, but within it is in a manner desolate, and when a man comes near it, he finds the walls almost even with the ground. He also says it was heretofore one of the greatest and noblest cities of all Persia, being above half a league in length, and the remains of a great gate and tower can still be seen a couple miles from the city which some affirm was once part of the city walls. We saw there the ruins of a very fair castle, Alarius tells us, which had served the king for a palace and the city for a citadel, there being yet standing some part of its walls, all built of square pieces of free stone and adorned with a great number of quadrangular towers. The noblest building in it is the mosque, and it has three gates, very much higher than those of St. Mark's at Venice, which are not of brass or copper, but of polished steel. The largest gate is near the marketplace, and not even twenty of the city's strongest men can open it, unless they speak the words, Be opened for Ali's sake. And then the gate turns to and fro upon its hinges, with so much ease that a child may open it. Alarius finds a library with old Arabic books, one of which contains a fable which the reader may haply think worth his reading. Once upon a time, when God banished the devils and shut heaven's gate upon them, they still had a desire to know what the angels did. The devils also wanted to know what heaven said about the fortunes of men, that they might transmit this knowledge through fortune-tellers and sorcerers. The only way to get these secrets was for the devils to stand on one another's shoulders until the one at the very top could put his ear to heaven's gate. But God perceived this attempt and threw a star-shaped dart into the devil's head, which struck through all the devils immediately and reduced them to ashes. The effect of this fable can be seen when a meteor falls from the sky. The Persians rejoice and pronounce these words, God of his goodness keep us from the devil, they shall all be reduced to ashes, and we shall be delivered from them. He also tells us the city has about 6,000 inhabitants, which is not much less than the 2016 census of 7,600. The Germans remain in Sultani for three days, and the locals are intrigued by the tales of some European travelers, who say the cold causes the city's residents to abandon the city in winter for a warmer climate. Although this is not true, Valerius says, what is true is that many people have cellars under their homes that provide warmth in the winter and cool in the summer. They leave Sultani on June 25 after getting fresh horses and camels. The sick person's not able to ride on horseback, including Olarius and the company's physician, are transported in camel-mounted boxes called ketsauea. We were put to two great inconveniences, he says, one proceeding from the violent motion caused by the going of that great beast, which at every step gave us a furious jolt, and the other from the insupportable stink of the camels. There is only one boy to guide eight or ten camels, and so they are all tied together to march in single file so much that the infectious smell of all that went before came full into our noses. Once again they depart before sunrise, and the country between Sultani and the village of Karamda is very fertile, with arable and pasture lands on one side, and little mountains on the other. The Shah keeps his best racehorses and mares nearby, and the village is located near a river surrounded by so many trees and gardens that its name signifies a place of pleasure. Even today, the modern city of Koramdera is called the Green Jewel of Zanjan Province because of its gardens and fields. They reach Kazwin on the morning of June 27, and their entrance into the city is not as magnificent as some of the others. Yet it was handsome enough, we're told, since the governor meets them with some 500 men and a chariot pulled by two white oxen. A bit further on, 15 young ladies arrive on horseback, well-mounted, very richly clad in clothes of gold and silver, with great pearl necklaces about their necks, pendants in their ears, and an abundance of other jewels. Contrary to the custom of honest women in Persia, these girls show their faces, and the Germans are informed that they are some of the most eminent courtesans of the city who came to entertain us with the divertissement of their music. The prostitutes march ahead of the embassy, singing and playing music all the way through the city until they reach their assigned lodgings on the other side. In the next episode, we hear an entertaining tale of immortality, a gruesome tale about snakes that eat men's brains, and a Muscovian servant dies of the bloody flux on the road to Isfahan, on the voyages and travels of the ambassadors.